0: Hello, it's great to be with you tonight, Um, I'm not entirely sure, I know this is a new mic and I have a beard and there are two nemesis with beards, um, wireless mics and soup, (laughs) true story, (laughs) they're awful, genuinely terrible. Um, But it's so good to be with you guys tonight, Um, uh, it is wonderful seeing a whole bunch of new faces, Uh, if I've ever met before please do come say hi, Um, I'd love to meet you, Um, it's so exciting What's happening at New Community, we, I was uh, in the Elta meeting this morning, and, and we had oh, it was so encouraging. Just throughout the worship, there were loads of moments where God spoke really clearly. And not only was it a significant word from God, but it connected so much with what I was then going to speak on. And it's so encouraging when in our times of worship, we respond. When God speaks to us, because he does, he doesn't just speak to us, he also speaks to us as the church. And it's so encouraging when God uses the body to bless the body, and that's what we're seeing all across the community. So for those of you who are taking that big, bold step and are sharing for the first time or bringing a song like Lauren did this this evening, that is so scary, Uh, and I'm so encouraged by um, how you guys are responding to what God's doing. And um, we're going to be... covering our second part of our Philippines series today. And um, if I'm honest, if, it's kind of tough when you have such a stunningly beautiful uh, back holiday weekend like we have today because it's spring, it's hot, it's lovely, and there's just a sense of optimism in the air. But the reality is Philippians deals with some really heavyweight issues. Um, And so I feel a little bit odd in some sense dragging you from the sun into this. But I appreciate that, although I may feel great because I've spent all day in the sun, um, that's not the reality of life. And Philippians deals with the real side of life. Not just the bits that are nice and easy and we like talking about. Philippians deals with the real bits of life that we perhaps don't like sharing, that we find difficult to talk about. Philippians deals with suffering and joy, these amazing, deep, wonderful themes that we need to hear so much about. So I'm going to um, plow through this. It's going to come up behind me. Um, we're in Philippians 1, 12 to 18. And if you want to read along with me, Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guards and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Only that in every way, whether by pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Lord God, we thank you. You promised to us in your words, grace upon grace. Lord, we confess that tonight we need you. However we're particularly feeling about things, we were made to know God. We were made to need you and depend upon you, and God, would you speak to us tonight? Thank you. You've spoken through our time of worship. God, would you speak to us through your word in your beautiful name? Amen. Um, Philippians deals with defeat. How do we deal with defeat? And I think uh, we, throughout our lives, we deal with all kinds of trial, all kinds of frustrations, all kinds of difficulties. And just, I think, to help Help us get back into that place of understanding what real suffering feels like. Let me share a few stories. These are are real people, people I know, people I've um, shared a little bit of their journey with. Think of the employee called into his boss's office, sitting down in in a job that he's loved for years, that he's worked hard at for years, that he's worked late nights for, that he's worked his butt off to do well in. And in a moment, his boss says to him, we no longer want you here. You, you're going to have to leave this job and find another one. And in that instance, this bloke feels a number of different things. A sense of rejection. A sense of failure. A sense of, how, what's my next job going to look like? How can I trust the jobs I go into next? If this man's a Christian, what does he do in those moments? Take another story... Their fiance, whose husband to be, weeks before their big day, calls her up and says, "I I don't know how to I don't even know how to say this to you, but um, we need to call the wedding off. I can't do this. I can't go ahead with this. In fact, not only that, I we can't be together. I've just realised this isn't this isn't this isn't going to work out." And she, in that moment, feels a number of things: a sense of brokenness a real painful sense of rejection, a fear, what's the future gonna look like? What I had in mind of what the future would look like now looks very different. Uh, Maybe a real loneliness, what what am I gonna do next? Take another example, a couple expecting a baby. A moment that should be full of joy, should be full of hope, should be full of um, a, a wonderful sense of preparation. They go in for the scan, as all couples do. And they hear the horrible news that they, they feared most. Uh, this wonderful baby is going to be born with disabilities. That the, their life and the baby's life from now on is going to look very different. What, what do you do in that moment? If you're a Christian, how do you deal with that kind of news? How do you deal with that kind of life that you never expected? What do you do in those seasons Fortunately, we have a Bible who, that doesn't hide from us the realities of life. The Bible talks about suffering a lot. And it means that when we're in these moments, not if, but when we're in these moments, God is with us. God is with us. He speaks to us directly in these moments. And we see that the Philippians, and Paul indeed had plenty of reasons... To be devastated at this time. To just give a little bit of a backstory. Paul is writing to these Philippians from a two-year prison stint. He's been under house arrest for two years, um, and he's in there as a political prisoner. A lot of other Christians who have been in similar places were executed. So there's a very real chance that Paul's life could end at any moment. And Paul's relationship with the Philippians is significant, not because they're not just because they're good friends, although they are, but because He planted that church. Many of those Philippians can can owe their walk with God to that man. This is a devastating moment. And what's more, if, say, you're a church in the Roman world, Paul has done an astounding amount of work. All the way around the Mediterranean Sea, he has planted church after church after church. This guy is a machine. It would be easy easy for Christians to look on this and think, if this guy goes, what on earth is going to happen with the gospel in this world? How easy is it for us to see this situation and think, ah, oh, come on, is it really that bad? When we step into their shoes, you, you start to see, man, this is tough, this is hard. And it all the more brings to life the words that he's saying. When we put ourselves in that situation, we realize this is a suffering that we can relate to. What we see is Paul was doing exactly what God had called him to do. He was being faithful to the dot of what God had asked him to do and yet he experiences suffering. He experiences the kind of suffering that sometimes as Christians we can ask ourselves, but God, I, I did everything you, you asked me of me. Why am I still going through this suffering? And as James said last week, I found it so helpful, so much of pastoral ministry is people, despite being obedient to God, experiencing crushing defeat as life did not go the way they intended. But Paul shows us more than this. See, Paul's conclusion with all of this is not a negative one. It is not a pessimistic one. In fact, it's the opposite. There is a profound sense of optimism in Paul's words as he speaks to the Philippians, as he reasons with them. This is a man full of optimism. Full of optimism that if, if we see things the way the world does, we will be totally confused by what Paul says. What? Seriously? How are you in a good mood about any of this? How is any of your situation, the Philippians situation, the future, how is any of that good? I and mean, this man is full of optimism, and tonight we're gonna unpack why. Why is this guy optimistic? Why does this guy look at the future and see victory? We're gonna step through tonight what victory looks like. And I'm gonna begin uh, I'm gonna begin with number one victory in suffering. We um, see um, suffering throughout the Bible, um, but particularly in Philippians. There's loads and loads and loads of it. But if we look at maybe other little bits of the Bible, we see um, maybe it's in a book like Job, or a book like Lamentations, or Jeremiah. I think um, psychologists would look at Jeremiah and and say, yep, that guy was probably clinically depressed. And and then it doesn't end throughout the New Testament. You see um, apostle after apostle who was under immense persecution. We see all of the disciples in one way or another, apart from John, were killed. And John didn't die because they couldn't kill him. Either way, the, the bottom line is they were all under immense suffering day in, day out. Why is this? What we see with Paul is, is something wonderful that he's discovered, something wonderful that he's found. Take, for example, a mine. In South Africa, they have these mines that go down uh, four kilometers. Like That's, that's insanely deep. I can't even imagine what going down into the earth four kilometers looks like. But apparently what it's like is as you go down further and further and further, it gets more and more oppressive. It gets hotter and hotter. And the oxygen gets less and less and less. And you have in mind some of these most oppressive, horrible places. And yet in these mines, and in this particular one in South Africa, you find the most, some of the most precious metals known to man. Gold, silver, platinum. And you have these tiny pieces of metal, just just like this one, that are symbols of beauty, symbols of value, in some of the most darkest and oppressive places. Christian suffering is a bit like that mine. They are horrible places, full of of heat, full of uh, this oppression nature, and yet in them, in amidst suffering, we find... Wonderful treasures in Christ. We see over and over again that Christians encounter suffering, go to their gods and discover the most amazing, precious gifts from God in those moments. We're gonna unpack some of what that looks like. We see that uh, Paul didn't just grit his teeth. He didn't just become really resilient. He didn't just soldier on. He says he goes through shipwrecks, beatings, threats, loneliness, despairing. But he has this wonderful reliance on the grace of God. But God's grace is better. He sees God's hands in all of his suffering. He knows this isn't wasted. This isn't pointless. God's hand is in and amongst my suffering. And you see, we see in verse 18, he says, in that I rejoice. Just to give a bit of context to verse 18, um, essentially what's happened is a whole bunch of Christians who are um, preaching the good news. Some of them are preaching the good news um, to honour and bless Paul. And some Christians, and this is a little bit of an odd phrase, I had to wrestle with it a little bit, are preaching the gospel in a way to afflict Paul. I find that a little bit confusing. How can you be be preaching the gospel and then using it to to trash talk someone? I don't quite understand that. Either way, you have this crazy example... Of hypocritical Christians. I mean, like, what Christians would be hypocritical in this day and age? Of course, none of us would have experienced any of that. But Paul experienced hypocritical Christians who are making his life hell. And yet he sees, actually, I see God's gospel on display and I rejoice. And he has this profound ability somehow to see this suffering, to see this horrible situation and yet he sees God's hand at work. How do we have that kind of perspective? How do we have that kind of perspective that within suffering, no, 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 I see God's hand at work here. We see in Revelation 3.19, Jesus says to his people, these whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Suffering isn't always where God is reproving us, but it often is. And it is so helpful when we're in these moments of darkness and despair and saying, God, I know you love me. In fact, I know you work all things for the good of those who love you. All things. That means every situation you're in is not an accident, it's not a mistake. It's not that God was off duty, went to make a sandwich, came back, oh, no, I'm sorry, I, I missed it. You know, you were going for that job and that was perfect for you, and I'm just, I'm, I'm sorry, I messed up. God doesn't mess up. He means that where he leads you, if you trust in Christ tonight, he loves you. The place you're in right now is not a mistake. There may be some of your own unfaithfulness in it, but God is still in control. And he works suffering for our good outrageously. And that is how we can go through times like Paul did and say, but God is still good. And even more than that, I rejoice in this situation because God is good to me. We have to ask this question, God, how are you being good to me right now? How are you loving me? And our stories look different. Our walks with God looks different, but God still loves us. And there is no moment we can go to where it is too far. I, I cannot rejoice in God. Because wherever we've been, we've seen the Bible full of people who have been far worse. And yet in those moments, they find in Christ, the opportunity to rejoice, to dig deeper into his riches, his mercy, and his goodness. And number one, victory in suffering. Number two, victory in the world. Paul says in verse 12, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. One commentator calls it this. As he was thrown in prison to prevent the spread of the gospel, what we actually see is the gospel then spreads that the roadblocks of Satan have been used as the stepping stones for the gospel. The roadblocks of Satan have been used for the stepping stones of the gospel. How many moments do we have places like that where we are longing to share the gospel in one way or another with this friend or that friend and something comes up? Something comes up. You could say it's people who oppose the gospel or, you know, like Jesus is very clear that Satan does not like it. When we step forward into the things that God has for us when we share the gospel Satan freaks out and hates it and yet God uses these unfortunate circumstances like being thrown in prison to advance his gospel will continue so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guards and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ just to explain this a little bit so we have this Imperial Guard who are ten thousand elite guards personal for the Emperor. And Paul as a as a political prisoner, he's been guarded by one of those guys. This like SWAT team kind of level guards who knows what he's doing. And what we see is that um, his story of being imprisoned for Christ, because he loves Jesus, is being spread. And he's starting to see, bit by bit, the opportunity to spread this message. And, and you kind of wonder why, and I looked into a little bit of the history for a moment, and it started to make sense as to why. What the situation would have been is he would have been bound with chains. So, John, could you come up here a moment with those chains? I just happen to have some chains. What are the, what are the chances? And I need you to bind my... No, just use, like, one end of it. All right, and, and I need you to bind my arms. And so he would have been bound like this in chains for about two years. And um, what's more than that, he would have been chained to his guard. So, John, now I want you to bind your own. That's good enough. Yeah, that's fine. I'm not getting out of that. Um, and you, you, now you bind that to yourself. Okay. So just imagine for a moment that uh, John is part of the imperial guard. I mean, uh, yeah, I reckon you could get away with that. A bit more metal. You'd be all right. Awesome. And so, and so this is a particular picture the Roman Empire loves to use of absolute submission. Of The Roman Empire would crush anything that looked like um, stepping away from their authority. And this, from a worldly perspective, is a picture of submission. Paul has been completely um, pushed down and and captured by the Roman Empire and the Roman strength. And yet here's what Paul sees. He sees the gospel power at work. He knows that the truth he knows is powerful and transforms lives. He knows that the spirit that lives in him is the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And so Paul knows, I'm bound. But he says in Timothy, but the word of God is not bound. And so although to a world's eyes, this is a bound man. Paul knows, you're actually bound to me right now. (laughs) Hey. And what would have happened is day after day, there would have been different guards. And they would have chained themselves to Paul. And Paul would say, hey, you want to hear about Jesus? And this guy's stuck. He can't even move. And what is wonderful about this, this is such a wonderful picture of the situations we get ourselves in, where we think, oh, man, I'm bound. I can't do what God's called me to do. I can't be faithful to him. I can't share his gospel. And what do we see? That God uses those moments for the advancements of his wonderful words. And so Paul, over and over again, says, "Hey, you want to hear about Jesus?" For two years, and we see later on in Philippians that Paul says, "Hey, all the all the saints in Caesar's household say hi." What he's saying is a whole bunch of people who got saved in Caesar's household. This guy's one of those people who's in Caesar's household. It's because Jesus. Sorry, it's because Paul has shared Jesus with these guys over and over again, and they've been stuck with it. And he's glorified God and used these opportunities. Thanks, John. You can get now now. <laughs> so we thank you, John? Thank you, John. You did, a, you did a great job. And we so often say, God has called me to X, but why? Why is God's plan for you? And so what opportunities has he opened up for you? What opportunities has God given you that you never expected in the first place? God's gospel is going to go forward because it's bigger than your situation. God's word is not bound. And friends, we have this wonderful word to share. And I'm not entirely sure if I'm allowed to share this, but I'm gonna share this anyway. Someone in the morning meeting this morning became a Christian. How cool is that? Isn't that amazing? God's gospel is a power in this church. And in case you weren't certain, in case you weren't sure, it's still changing lives. And it's the same good news that you and I know. Friends, we have victory in this world, not because we're strong, not because we're powerful, not because we have particularly epic arguments, but because God is powerful and he longs to save. I was reminded um, earlier on, a couple of weeks back, um, as part of my company, we um, deal with a lot of the, the current affairs that are going on in this world. I work, work for a, a big online forum, and one of the things that's kicking off at the moment is a particular hot topic And in these moments, I work with a whole bunch of people who aren't Christians. And in these moments, I do realize I am an absolute minority. (laughs) The things I believe are completely outrageous by this world's standards. And yet God still saves people. We do not have to have a popular, mm, palatable gospel. Our gospel is powerful to save because it's powerful to save. Friends, not because we've got really, really good at just fitting it nicely into their lives. And yes, there is, there is space and purpose for reason. And Paul, throughout his letters, he uses reason. But yet he depends upon a God who is immensely powerful. And friends, this is why we have confidence. When we go out into that world, when we share this wonderful good news with our friends and our family members and our neighbors who don't know Jesus, we can go with confidence because we know the word of God is not bound. It was the same in Paul's life. It's the same in our lives. We have the same wonderful God. And so we see victory in the world. Number three is victory in community. In verse 12 and 14, Paul uses the phrase brothers repeatedly. Brothers referring to the Philippians, brothers referring to the other Christians in Rome. This is a man who, who takes community really, really seriously. He didn't just call them friends, acquaintances. He calls them brothers. Brothers. And we have a, a bit of a picture throughout this passage of what community looks like, of what mission looks like. We see if anyone in you know, the whole of the Bible could go it alone, could do life without community, I'm pretty sure someone like Paul would be quite high up there. He's brilliant. He's great. He's written a whole bunch of books of the Bible. He is confident. He's bold. He knows the gospel. He doesn't need community. Come on. He doesn't need to live with brothers around. Him. And yet that's exactly what he says he should do. And that's, that's exactly the way he treats these people. That he is not just a one-man missionary stage preacher. He's on mission in community. He's with a whole bunch of other guys who he's encouraging and building and stirring that they would be on mission together, that they would step forward together. And this is one part of the body of Christ that I love, that I'm not on my own. When I share Jesus with my friends who I love, I love doing it around the church because um, I'm a bit weird. And I'm, I'm so grateful to have brothers and sisters around me who just balance out my weirdness and make the church of Christ a wonderful, welcoming place to be. I love it when my friends get with me and pray for this person we've been praying for for ages. I love it when we get to invite around neighbours who we've been praying for for ages and they get to come out and hang out with my other Christian friends. Like, mission is a community job. And we see that, that Paul does that as well. That he's building and working with the other saints that they will be on mission together as a community. But not just as a community. They're going to seek and see the gospel penetrate other communities they see whole communities of people become Christians. And this is what our mission looks like. Communities of people seeking communities of people to know Jesus. That's what mission looks like. And we have to fight for this a little bit. I'm, I'm laboring this point because we're not only British, but we also live in London. And this is, if any place is going to reject community, it's going to be in London. And we, we find amazing ways of doing the Christian walk on our own. And, and Paul, the guy who, you know, he's, he's just lying around sitting with incomplete books of the Bible that he's written. He still says, I need community. I long to be with you Philippians. He has this honest, authentic desire for community that we should long for too. And um, I do have to say amidst this, um, Christians are sometimes weird. Yeah? Is that fair to say? Community is not always the easiest thing. And, you know, there's always a few nutcases, cases, as every church should have. And that is how the church should look. But that doesn't mean it isn't good for us. In fact, it's really good for us. I was just reflecting the other day. I went and um, spent an evening um, with my wife, with an older couple. And just as the evening went on, I just reminded over and over again, you guys are so different to us. There are so many areas where we are just totally different. But I need that. I need that in my life. I need people who are different to me, who are going to challenge me and encourage me. And just their, even just the way they do life, be a blessing to me. And it's not always easy, but the best things for us aren't always easy in this world, right? And community is one of them. That's number three, victory in community. Number four, victory is God's. We see just throughout this whole scripture, this, throughout this whole passage... Paul is repeating over and over again look what God has done look what God has done I thought it was going to go this way and then God did something else look what God has done and he tries so hard so hard to say this isn't about me this isn't about my amazing ministry look what God has done let's be an encouragement to you because you have the same God. You have the same God who loves you and wants um, to meet with you powerfully and do wonderful things through you. Yeah. We have a God who is like that. And so friends, when we open up the Bible, we're not just reading about someone else's story. Yeah. When we open up the Bible, we're, just, we're not reading about, man, how amazing that other person was. We're reading about broken people, imperfect people, like in some places, seriously screwed up people being used by a perfect God to do perfect things. Yeah. Yeah, This is why it's encouraging. This is why when we open up the Bible, it should be so encouraging to us. Wow, they suck. God is good. Look what they did. This is amazing. That's a really, really simplified way of the way we read the Bible. Okay? Is that helpful? Because sometimes we open it and we're like, oh, man, this guy is just a bit of a mess. I'm just struggling to feel how I can be encouraged by this. Look at your own life. There are so many things we wrestle with and we get wrong, and yet God, in His amazing grace, uses us to do perfect things. And this is what Paul repeatedly encourages. He says in verse 18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Going back to the Christians who are preaching crazy things, who are preaching, well, the gospel in a way that trash talks Paul, he still rejoices. Because he knows the gospel is there and it's good news for us too friends this is wonderful this is so encouraging for us it means that however much we have screwed things up up until now there is hope for the future for us because God is good because God is good and he makes beautiful things out of ugly situations Paul, and I I just, I do forget this all the time because I'm so encouraged by Paul. I do forget what his past is like. Just in case anyone's not clear, he murdered Christians. Like he properly went for it and that was his thing. It wasn't even a hobby. It was like, this is my full-time job. I just murder Christians. That's like, that's my whole thing. This guy is such a wonderful picture. If God can use Paul for amazing things, there is hope for us. However broken and messed up our past is, God is working in us and through us for his glorious work. Okay, I've re-emphasized the same point over and over again now. I'll chill out now and move on to something else. But um, you do need to know that. It's really, really important. We're going to get to number five, victory in prayer. Now, this is a little cheeky. We're um, preaching in an expository way, which basically means working through the verses. And Paul actually doesn't pray in this bit. But I'm going to speak about it anyway. Because if you look at the whole book of Philippians, you see this amazing prayer right in the middle of it. And if we're talking about the way that God's, Meets us in defeat. You can't talk about that without talking about prayer. So I'm going to jam this in there anyway. Prayer is so important in this. To go back to the mine analogy. When you're digging for these precious metals, they don't just throw themselves at your feet. They don't just present themselves, behold, I am platinum, here for you. You have to apparently work crazy hard to get this stuff out of the ground. And sometimes finding joy amidst suffering is like that. It's not easy. It's hard work. Some of you have been in significant suffering and you know what that's like. This is not easy. And yet God calls us to have a life of prayer, not an event of prayer, not a particular time of prayer, but a life full of prayer, seeking him. Lord God, I know because you've said in your words that you promised joy. I need it, Lord. I remember times when... Um, when I'd recently become a Christian and I went through just a season of real affliction. And because I was, um, I don't know, 17, 18, I didn't have, I lived in a village, so I didn't really have much to do. Um, I just had this wonderful uh, space and freedom in my life that, um, that I, if I'm being completely honest, I miss because I just, I just made space for God in my life. And God met with me in some powerful ways. And I went on these prayer walks all around the suburbs that I was living in and sometimes for hours. And I just meet with God in the most amazing way. And and I think after that, I was just, after that season, I was particularly reminded that some of the most difficult seasons are when God speaks to us the clearest. Some of the most difficult seasons are the times when God speaks to us most powerfully. And, And I feel that God would say through this passage to us over and over again, don't waste your suffering. Don't waste these moments. God has wonderful grace for us. We, um, another bit where Paul was saying, God, take away this thorn in my flesh. We don't really know what it is, but, God, uh, but we know Paul um, had something that was afflicting him. And he said to God over and over again, take this away. And God said to him, no, my grace is sufficient for you. In the middle of this suffering, there is grace for you. That is enough. Friends, do we have enough? Do we have enough joy? Do we have enough experience of his grace? If we're not yet experiencing it, we need it. We're not supposed to live the Christian life without it. And so I'd encourage you so much. If this is something you've heard about, and I imagine if you've been here for enough minutes, you would have heard about it. And I imagine it would be getting a little irritating by now. If you're like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what you're talking about. And you keep talking about it. It's really irritating because I don't know it yet. The first place I point you towards It's not a course or a particular book to read, although they're good. It's pray. Spend time with God. Actually get in your needs, Carve out a bunch of time. Whatever else you were going to do with your evening, it's not good enough. It doesn't compare. Spend time with Jesus. If you're going through affliction and suffering at the moment, don't just try and deal with the affliction. I'll I'll fix it. I'll sort it out. Go to God. He loves you and wants to meet you in these moments, in these places. And so would we let our temporary trials, because trial in this world, it is temporary. Yeah. I mean, I know you know that, but, but let's be really, really clear about this. The stuff we're struggling with today, in eternity, we will not struggle with. We look forward to one day when God will wipe away every tear. And we long for that time. But in the here and now, in the here and now, God has wonderful things um, for us, promising us joy in this moment. He says in Jeremiah that he will turn our mourning, into joy, our oh, mourning into joy. Isn't that crazy? Those times when we're absolutely devastated actually will become moments of ultimate joy. I just want to finish with this this picture. I love with Jesus when he's on the cross. There's this really quite painful moment where he says he cries out to God, "God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" And friends, we know that that what God has done on the cross was in our place for our sin. And so when God was forsaken, he was forsaken in our place. So that when, when, when we're in suffering, when we're going through tough times, we can say, God, I know you will never forsake me. Yeah, There's this wonderful cross. Home. So every time you see Jesus there being forsaken, you know it is in your place for your sin. And this is wonderful. We walk every day knowing God has not forsaken us. He will never forsake us. Friends, we we not only have suffering in the past, suffering in the present to deal with, but there will be days in the future where there will be suffering. We know we, we are not forsaken. We can walk ahead in confidence knowing that God is with us. So I've got a question for you guys. We've been covering a lot of essentially biblical optimism tonight. How do we see victory when everything else, when all the world says, you shouldn't be rejoicing right now, you should be mourning? So how do we see victory in our lives? And here's a question I want you guys to ask each other, like, soon. Where do you find it difficult to see God's victory in your life? And, like, unless it's, like, crazy sensitive, you can't be honest with each other. Where do you struggle to see where God has a victory in your life? where do you struggle to be optimistic in your life i'm not saying hey just you know suck it up feel good choose to look on the bright side no no no, no. i mean real optimism i mean where do you struggle to see real joy in your life so that question is up there i'm going to give you guys five minutes you're going to ask the person next to you where do you struggle to see god's victory in your life and then josh is going to finish with a song is that right i'm going to pray for a super quick and i'm going to ask that question all right Lord God, thank you so much that you give us pictures in your words of people who go through the same stuff we've gone through. Thank you, Jesus, that you sent your son to the cross so that in these moments, we would know you. We would not be an abandoned, a rejected, and a forsaken people, but a people who are loved, who are pursued, who who has a father who is longing for us, who have an eternity waiting for us in heaven, that in these moments of suffering, we have hope. Lord God, I pray tonight, would you do a work in our hearts? Would we be a people who are even more submitted to you? Who the things that we're clinging on to, the the fear, the insecurity, the frustration we're clinging on to, that we would give to you tonight. And we will be a free people in Jesus' name. Amen.